For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. The Bloody Trunk On the morning of October 19th, 1931, Arthur Anderson showed up for work at Central Station in Los Angeles. The white stuccoed building was already bustling. Freshly arrived passengers hurried to catch taxis outside. People waiting for their trains ate breakfast in the lounge, and a long ticket line snaked across the station floor. Arthur was a baggage attendant, and he'd be busy this morning. The Golden State Limited was arriving from Phoenix on its way to Chicago, and a lot of people would be getting off in Los Angeles. In just a few minutes, Arthur heard the long red train come chugging down the track. He rushed to meet it on the platform and started unloading trunks from the cargo hold. Some of the trunks were unbelievably heavy. In the case of one lady's luggage, it took three attendants to hoist just one of the steamer trunks onto a trolley. Even in the cool early morning, Arthur was already covered in sweat. When the sun hit the steel umbrella that covered the platforms, the whole place became like a sauna. He leaned on one of the trunks and mopped his brow, and that's when he noticed the smell. It was a pungent, sour smell, and it hung about the trunks like a fog. He buried his nose in the crook of his arm and looked at the trunks. They were green and studded with bolts, and now that they were settled on the trolley, flies were beginning to stick to them, curious about whatever was emitting the smell. This wasn't the first time Arthur had sniffed something rotten on the platform. In California, there were limitations on what kind of meat you could hunt and sell. And every so often, someone got the bright idea to stuff their trunk with deer meat and try importing it across state lines. In these times of economic depression, people would try just about anything to turn a buck. But if they didn't get to a fridge in time, the stuff turned green in the boiling belly of the train. Arthur knelt down, and sure enough, a dark liquid was slowly dripping from the trunk. Another meat smuggler was getting off this train. Arthur alerted the policemen on duty at the station, and they waited for someone to collect the luggage. But the person who appeared didn't fit their usual image of a smuggler. 
It was a young, attractive woman in a white silk dress. She was very thin, with brown hair and blue eyes that held just a touch of grey. She asked if something was the matter, and the officer said they'd like to inspect her trunks. That would be fine, the woman said, but her husband had the keys. Could they wait here while she found him? The officer nodded and yawned as the woman headed down the platform, disappearing in the crowd. Another fly buzzed by Arthur's ears, and he brushed it away. Time passed, and the Golden State Limited pushed out of the station, headed east. The woman didn't return. If she and her husband were smugglers, they probably decided to ditch their goods and take off. But it wasn't a big deal. Confiscating the goods would be sufficient. The trunks were so heavy, Arthur and the officer could hardly push the trolley, and Arthur worried that once they got it going, they wouldn't be able to stop it. But they leaned their weight backward and finally eased the trunks into a private room. Arthur looked back and saw that they'd left a trail of weird brown liquid across the station floor. Then he retrieved a crowbar. The officer jammed it into the lock of the largest trunk, and it split open. The smell of rot choked the room. Black flies scattered everywhere. Arthur only caught a glance of what was inside before the blood left his head, and it all went dark. It was about a year before, in 1930, that a young woman named Winnie Ruth Judd decided she needed a change. She'd been living in Los Angeles with her husband, Dr. William C. Judd, but just couldn't take it anymore. William was 22 years older than Winnie, and while she was pretty and vivacious, he was bald and fat and unsociable. Maybe she could have gotten over the physical differences, but then it was hard to live with William for other reasons as well. He'd served as a doctor in the Great War, and he'd come back from Europe deeply scarred by what he'd seen in those muddy, rat-infested trenches. Restless and jumpy, he dragged his young wife all across the United States and Mexico, as if he might outrun his demons. Finally, they settled in Los Angeles, and that's where he started abusing his position as a doctor to acquire morphine. It was the only thing that helped hold off the terrors at night, the dead soldiers blaming him for not being smart enough to save their lives. The ghosts seemed to hover above his bed, their legs blown off, their guts hanging out. He soon became addicted to the drug, and Winnie found herself living with the shell of a man, an eerie vacancy somewhere behind his eyes. That's when Winnie started having trouble drawing breath, and a doctor diagnosed her with a mild case of tuberculosis. He recommended that she move somewhere dry for a while, and that settled it. Winnie packed a suitcase and booked a ticket to Phoenix, Arizona, leaving her husband behind with his demons.
It was a bold decision, made even bolder by the times. America had been plunged into an economic depression, and there was still no end in sight. As Winnie rode the train down to Phoenix, she entered a desert valley that seemed to perfectly match the desolation of the times. True, when the stock market crashed in 1929, the newspapers of Phoenix barely even mentioned the story. It all seemed so distant. An East Coast problem. What could it possibly have to do with this little oasis of a city? But just a couple of years on, and Phoenix had learned a painful lesson about the interconnected nature of the marketplace. Two of the city's banks had closed, and unemployment had spread like a plague. The state of Arizona once depended on the mining industry, and when copper prices crashed, whole towns were vacated overnight. These drifters had flooded into Phoenix in search of work, and from her seat on the train, Winnie could see the makeshift camps of tents and shacks in parks and vacant lots. Thankfully, Winnie still had connections from being a doctor's wife. So when she stepped out of the mission-style Union Station at the foot of downtown Phoenix, she had a line on a job as a secretary at a medical clinic. It wasn't very glamorous, just a lot of paperwork, but it was solid and steady, and she needed the money like the Phoenix Valley needs water. At the clinic, Winnie met Anne Leroy, an X-ray technician who invited Winnie over for dinner and a game of bridge. Anne lived in a bungalow at 2929 North 2nd Street with a roommate, Hedwig Samuelson, better known as Sammy. As Winnie got to know Anne and Sammy, she discovered that their lives echoed each other's in strange ways, as if these uncertain times had thrust them together to teach each other some kind of lesson. Anne was also recently separated from her husband, a newly single woman rediscovering her independence, and Sammy also suffered from tuberculosis. Like Winnie, she'd come to Phoenix for its dry, superior air. But Sammy's disease was far more advanced. Now she was practically bedridden and had gained a lot of weight from inactivity. Anne looked after her, and one of the ways of lifting Sammy's spirits was by hosting these long, late, laughing nights at the card table. Prohibition was still in effect, and Phoenix was technically a dry town, no alcohol allowed. But in the Depression, people needed a drink. Little speakeasies sprouted like mushrooms across the small, compact city of just 41,000 people, and the booze that flowed from their taps originated in the Chicago operation of Al Capone, the most famous gangster in the world. The women would buy a bottle of gin in a paper sack and smuggle it back to the bungalow. Winnie felt a little guilty about that. Her father was a Methodist preacher and believed alcohol rotted the soul. But when the gin hit her tongue, it loosened her lips, and the women bonded into a tight little club by sharing stories of their struggles. Soon enough, 
Winnie wanted to be around her new friends all the time, and she moved in as a roommate. But their club wasn't always just the three of them. They often had a visitor, a handsome 44-year-old man named Jack Halloran. He was nicknamed Happy, perhaps because Jack was just about the only man in Phoenix who hadn't been walloped by the Depression. Jack was a lumber dealer and still enjoyed a steady flow of business. His aura of prosperity made him seem like a verdant oasis in the barren desert valley, and all three women were powerfully drawn to him. Jack was married, but that didn't stop him from beginning to sleep with Winnie, Anne, and Sammy, alternating bedrooms on a whim. That was the power he enjoyed as a wealthy man in a time of want. He could simply choose a woman like a product on a shelf. The arrangement sowed discord among the women. Sammy was too hopeless, too bedridden to be a real threat for supremacy in Jack's affections. But soon enough, Winnie and Anne started regarding each other as rivals, like two thirsty animals at the same drinking hole. But something else had already come between the two friends from the clinic money. Just before Jack complicated their friendship, Anne fell ill and decided to return to her family home in Oregon to recuperate. Winnie had loaned her money for the trip, only to discover that Anne had spent it on a brilliant new wardrobe. In Winnie's view, Anne didn't really care about Jack, not like Winnie anyway. Winnie had begun her affair with Jack on Christmas Eve and believed there was something romantic and true in their connection. The sort of love that could transport her out of her workaday life into a new, adventurous world. Anne, on the other hand, was just working Jack for money. But Anne was divorced, while Winnie was merely separated, and so Winnie found it difficult to openly compete with her rival. She would come home tired from work, only to find Anne in fresh white chiffon, ready for a date with Jack, his black hair shining with pomade. The sight of the beautiful, available, stylish other woman tormented Winnie. All she could do was picture Anne and Jack together, their bodies entwined in lust. For some reason, Winnie never called Jack's behavior into question. It wasn't his fault for playing the women off each other, or for changing bedmates the way others change clothes. Instead, all of her insecurity focused on Anne. It was Anne's fault that Winnie and Jack weren't closer. It was Anne's fault that Winnie hadn't been transported into a life of wealth and protection. Anne was taunting her. That's right, taunting her. Having Jack wasn't enough. Anne wanted Winnie to see how much more beautiful, more intelligent, and more womanly she was. Anne wanted her affair with Jack so she could annihilate Winnie, to scorch every last secret hope Winnie harbored. Winnie couldn't live here anymore. 
she had to escape. In October of 1931, she moved a few blocks away from the bungalow into a place of her own. It was more expensive, but it would be worth it not to have to endure Anne's constant taunting. Over the next 14 nights, Jack spent 10 of them at Winnie's new place. But somehow this didn't banish Anne's taunting from her mind. 10 out of 14 nights was a lot of attention, sure. But where was Jack on those other nights? Was he down the street at the bungalow? his face buried in the perfumed crook of Anne's soft white throat. Winnie stayed up all night, every night, obsessing over Anne, her nemesis, the taunt still ringing in her ears, her nerves beginning to break. She worried that she was losing her mind. After all, she'd seen her husband be driven mad by night terrors, visions he couldn't suppress, was the same thing happening to her. Winnie started taking huge amounts of sedatives and focusing intensely on her work seemed to bring something like peace. But at night, she thrashed in her sheets, tortured by thoughts of Anne. She lost weight, her tuberculosis flared, she ran a fever. Her mind was wild, out of her control, running away. Winnie wondered if she should convert to Catholicism. The idea had never occurred to her before, and her Methodist father would disown her if he knew. But she longed for a priest to whom she could unburden herself, a black robe she could cling to, a ringed finger she could kiss. But then she knew it was hopeless, utterly hopeless. The drugs wouldn't work. Religion wouldn't work. There must be some way to silence her mind forever. Winnie bought a gun. It was a little .25 caliber pistol, and it made her feel powerful, potent, in control. She hid it in a drawer, wishing she could hold it all the time but virtually anything could shatter her fragile confidence. On Saturday night, October 10th, 1931, at about two o'clock in the morning, Happy Jack rolled up to Winnie's new place in a taxi. He was drunk out of his mind, vulgar and rude, even dragging the taxi driver inside for yet another nightcap. When the driver made a sexual pass at Winnie, and Jack did nothing to defend her, just laughing about it, Winnie ordered them out. Suddenly sober and suddenly cold, Jack said fine, he'll leave, he'll go over to Anne's. The door closed behind him, and desert sand spread across Winnie's soul. For the next three nights, she didn't hear from him and now the taunts were louder than ever. It felt as if she were being stabbed by thousands of tiny daggers, daggers from every direction. But through the noise in her mind, an idea took shape. Insane, evil, alluring. If only she could bring the idea into the world, she might find that core of silence in her soul 
and be at peace forever. Wednesday night saw yet another futile attempt to sleep. More pointless hours of thrashing, her nerves crackling like broken wires. Finally, it was time. It had to happen. She grabbed the gun and prowled through the moonlit night to Anne and Sammy's bungalow. Her plan was to shoot Anne in her bed through the window. Just a single shot and she could rest. The thought of a good night's sleep made her whole body weep. She took a chair from the neighbor's yard and set it underneath Anne's bedroom window. Then she stood on it and peered inside. The window was open and she could see Anne in the bed asleep, her face faintly touched by the pale moonlight. As she raised the gun, Winnie felt her stomach shake. Tears gushed from her eyes. She could hardly see what she was aiming at. And suddenly, her finger wouldn't respond. She couldn't pull the trigger. Ruined by failure, the taunt still screaming through her mind. Winnie slunk back to her house and onto the rack of her bed. Two nights later, the events of Friday night, October 12th, became a nightmarish legend that would be debated by experts for decades to come. The truth would be lost for a long, long time, until a secret sheaf of papers told the story. Winnie always reserved Friday nights for a date with Happy Jack. As evening fell over the city, he would roll up to her place in a taxi and they would spend the night together. But on this particular Friday, he didn't materialise. Winnie waited in her best dress, braced for the sound of his steps on the walk, his jaunty knock on the door. Every time a car turned onto her block and its headlights suffused the curtains of her living room, her heart gave such a lurch she thought it would jump out of her mouth. But then the car would disappear into the distance, and there were no steps, no knock, no jack. She blew out the candles and began undressing for bed, but she couldn't get under the sheets. Trying to sleep was like being buried alive, twisting and turning with no escape beneath the weight of her own mind. No, she would not get into bed. Not tonight. She ripped the drawer open and withdrew the gun. Its power swelled through her. Then she grabbed a knife from the kitchen and set out for the bungalow. She didn't have a plan and even if she did, she didn't know if she could really do it. But she was led forward anyway, as if the gun and the knife had powers of persuasion all their own. When she reached the bungalow, she took off her shoes and set them beside the knife by the back door. Then she went around to the front and silently slipped inside. Faced with the hush of the house, Anne and Sammy sleeping in their rooms, 
a strange fatigue came over Winnie. She sat on the couch in the living room, suddenly exhausted. As if only here, in the bungalow, could she find the rest she'd been seeking. In a few minutes, cradling the gun like a newborn baby, she fell asleep. Footsteps in the hall awakened her. It was Sammy, going to the bathroom. Winnie listened to the tinkle of urine in the bowl, the flushing of the toilet, and Sammy's steps wandering back to bed. Remembering why she was here, Winnie stood and crept to Anne's bedroom, her bare feet soundless on the hardwood floor. The outside of her body was in total control, but her stomach was turning inside out, twitching and jumping in crazy convulsions. The idea was coiled up inside her, ready to explode into the world. But when she reached the threshold of Anne's bedroom and saw the peaceful sleeping woman, she couldn't do it. The idea imploded back into her mind and she retreated to the living room in defeat. Winnie sank into the welcoming embrace of the couch and immediately fell asleep again. But Sammy must have had too much to drink the night before because she continually got up to use the bathroom and Winnie continually awakened and went to Anne's doorway and was met with the resistance of her own cowardice. Finally, the first blush of morning met the windows. Winnie heard the stirring birds outside and the milkman making his deliveries. Sammy was in the bathroom again. That's when something fell into place. An insane desire. The power of the gun. And she knew she'd either sink into oblivion here on the couch, just a weak and ruined woman, or take destiny into her own hands. While Sammy was still in the bathroom, Winnie slipped along the hall and stood at the bedroom door. Again, she raised the gun, but this time, her finger met no resistance. It all happened in a flash. She pulled the trigger and the gun kicked back and the bullet struck Anne in the bed. The bullet hole burned on the bedsheet and a blood stain slowly spread, seeping through the cotton until it dripped onto the floor. Sammy called, What fell, Anne? When there was no answer, Sammy emerged and saw Winnie standing there, the gun still hot in her hands. Sammy demanded to know what was going on, then peered through the bedroom door and saw the blood. Suddenly, she snatched the gun from Winnie. Sammy, Winnie said, a desperate pleading in her voice, as if at last she'd found her priest. I'm crazy. I've lost my mind. Give me the gun and I'll blow my brains out right here. But Sammy wouldn't give her the gun. So Winnie rushed to the back door where she'd left the knife beside her shoes. She grabbed it and went back inside. She'd never had any intention of hurting Sammy. Somehow, the bigger, bedridden woman's affair with Jack never affected her like Anne's did. But she needed the gun. 
so she lunged at Sammy with the knife, slicing deep into the meat of her shoulder. With a cry, Sammy pulled the trigger and the bullet grazed Winnie's hand, and now it was a fight to the death. The women wrestled for the gun, and Sammy accidentally fired it, shooting herself through the chest. But that didn't bring her down. She still struggled to grip the weapon as blood oozed from the wound. Finally, Sammy's strength diminished. Winnie wrested the gun from her hands, and without thinking, she shot Sammy in the head. Purple brain splashed across the wall and slid to the floor, and Sammy's big body slumped back, dead, her eyes open and confused. Now the bungalow was silent again, as if the women were still sleeping, and an eerie calm came over Winnie. She took off her clothes and put on a pair of Anne's pyjamas, then dragged Sammy's body into the bathroom and washed the floors and walls. There was no thought, really, no rational ideas. She was just following that insane instinct, that self-preserving desire that had led her to the bungalow in the first place. She went to the garage and found some enormous green trunks studded with bolts and brought them inside. It was about seven in the morning now. She saw the neighbouring family get into a car and drive away. Everything normal in the world. Everything except the scene in the bungalow. Tugging, pulling, Winnie managed to drag Anne's body from the bed and hoist it into one of the trunks. But she simply could not lift Sammy. Her body sat there on the floor like a boulder, and after hours of exertion, Winnie gave up. That's when she realised she was due for a shift at the clinic. So she cleaned herself, bandaged the bullet wound on her hand, and went to work with the knife and the bloody pyjamas stuffed into her purse. All that day, Sammy's heavy corpse sprawled on the bathroom floor. After work, Winnie returned, sneaking through the bathroom window. But even though Sammy's skull was emptied out, Winnie couldn't lift it. Even worse, the body had gone stiff on the tiled floor. Winnie looked up the empty trunk and back at the body. There was only one solution. It had to be done. She went to the kitchen and retrieved two butcher's knives. They'd been recently sharpened, but both were dull by the time she was through. She sawed off Sammy's head, gripped it by the roots of her hair, and plunked it in the trunk. Then she bisected the corpse at the waist and hauled the dripping torso into the trunk, its guts dangling like rope. Finally, she hoisted the legs and packed them as well, the luggage a jumble of stiff remains. Now there was another problem there was no way to lift the trunks. Using all her strength, Winnie pushed them inch by agonizing inch to the front stoop. It took hours, but in her maniacal condition, she felt no exhaustion, just a grim determination, like an insect at work. 
She called Lightning Delivery and had some movers ship the trunks to her house a few blocks away. It took three men to lift them into the truck. When they were gone, the unwitting couriers of butchered body parts, Winnie grabbed the garden hose, twisted the tap and cleaned Anne's bloody mattress. Then she carried the mattress to a vacant lot at the corner of Third and Pinchot and tried setting it on fire, but the mattress was too soaked, so she left it. When she went home, the trunks had been placed in her bedroom. Winnie slept that night with the chopped-up bodies of her former friends at the foot of her bed, and the peaceful slumber that had eluded her for weeks at last took her away. As if there were three dead women in the room, she lay there until noon, totally dark in the mind. When the police officer at Central Station pried open the trunk with a crowbar and the luggage attendant, Arthur Anderson, looked inside, the vacant eyes of a woman stared back at him. An agonised frown on her face, her neck a jagged sword-off stump. The officer immediately called for backup and described the young woman in the white silk dress who'd come to collect the bags before vanishing in the steam of the platform. She must be from Phoenix, because that's where the train had come from. But the mystery didn't last long. Already, back in Phoenix, the disappearance of Anne and Sammy had caused people to go snooping at the bungalow. And what they found there spoke to a violent struggle. Soon enough, a name materialised. Winnie Ruth Judd. And the cops put out a warrant for her arrest. Meanwhile, Winnie drifted through the streets of Los Angeles. She'd come here to meet her brother. But after the cops found the luggage, she didn't dare approach anyone she knew. She had no money and nowhere to sleep, and so she stayed in a store on Broadway past closing and hid in the back room until morning. Then she walked miles and miles to a tuberculosis sanatorium where she'd once stayed. She snuck into a vacant room and huddled in the bed overnight. If at any point in these catatonic wanderings she'd stopped to look at a newsstand, she'd have seen that the story of the bodies in the trunks was splashed across the front page of every paper. Her estranged husband had roused from his morphine haze to plead in public for Winnie to give herself up. And back in Phoenix, the landlord of the bungalow was giving tours of the crime scene for ten cents a pop. Good business in the Depression. Finally, Winnie was apprehended in the Alvarez and Moore Funeral Chapel in Los Angeles, perhaps waiting until closing for somewhere to sleep. She was covered in bruises from her struggle with Sammy, and the bullet wound on her hand was still weeping. The trial became an immediate sensation, a welcome distraction from the hard scrabble daily life in the Depression. Every day, a hundred onlookers packed the Phoenix courthouse. Winnie was a celebrity. Her every utterance, every movement in the courtroom, dissected in detail in the papers. 
In fact, it was rumoured that the Los Angeles Times had paid for her expensive legal team in exchange for exclusive interviews. But what exactly happened on that fateful Friday night? Winnie's strategy was to spread a fog of misinformation across the event so that no one could say for sure. After all, there was only one living witness. Her. At first, she said it was self-defence. The women had argued about their common lover, Happy Jack, and Anne and Sammy set upon Winnie, who defended herself and survived. Then she said that Jack had actually assisted her in dismembering Sammy's body and cleaning up the crime scene. In fact, it had been his idea to take the trunk to Los Angeles, where an accomplice would help Winnie throw the bodies into the Pacific Ocean. When none of these stories seemed to stick, Winnie entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. And it was her mental state, those crazed electric nerves, that became the crux of the trial. When the closing arguments were over, the square-jawed judge told the jury that the only relevant question was whether Winnie was sane enough to know right from wrong. It was the longest trial in county history, and the jury had been in isolation the whole time. In order to pay their employees back on the farm, the ranchers and cattlemen had to place paychecks and wicker baskets on ropes that went up and down from the windows of their hotel rooms. Despite the fact that only one woman had ever been executed in the state of Arizona, their verdict was clear. Guilty they said, and set the punishment at death by hanging. Yet Winnie's story had attracted high-profile sympathisers. The newspaper magnate, William Randolph Hearst, had donated to her defence fund, and the First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt, came out in Winnie's support. People seemed to perceive something in her story, some lesson about this awful era. Just a few days before she was set to be executed, Winnie was deemed criminally insane and transferred to the Arizona State Mental Hospital. For years, no one could say for certain what happened that Friday night. Some people believed the story of self-defense. Others thought Happy Jack must be caught up in it somehow. In fact, enough people believed in his guilt that he lost his lofty status in Phoenix and died just a few years later. Winnie, meanwhile, never quite settled into her life in the asylum. She escaped seven times. The last time she made it out, she disappeared for six years, living under an assumed name in San Francisco and working as a nanny for a wealthy family. She was finally apprehended in 1969 and extradited back to Phoenix. But in 1971, the governor gave her a formal pardon, saying she'd served long enough. And anyway, the details of the case remained hazy. Had she ever really been guilty in the first place? Winnie left the asylum a final time 
and returned to the wealthy family whom she'd nannied for under an assumed name. In 1998, Winnie Ruth Judd passed away, and, it seemed, the truth died with her. Years passed, and the story became a grisly legend. Winnie's guilt or innocence the stuff of long expert debate. And then one day, in 2014, a safe deposit box was discovered with a sheaf of 13 pages inside. This is my first and only confession of the case of the homicide of Anne Leroy and Hedwig Samuelson. It is the absolute truth of this case. The note had been written in a looping cursive and signed Winnie Ruth Judd. It was as if she'd taken her bloody secret and stuffed it in a box and shipped it off into the future. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.